Hey kids, how many of you feel special? Well, I have a song for you. <laughs> You're not that special. <laughs> You're not that special. <laughs> You're not that special. And if you think you are, well, you're not. <laughs> there are hundreds of millions of children all over this big world. And that's just too many for you to try and count. Too many boys and girls. And if every one of them thinks that they are special too, well, that means that none of them are really special, <laughs> including you, you, and you. You're not that special. You're not that special. Sing along. You're not that special. And if you think you are, well, you're not. They say if you reach for the stars, your dreams will come true. But the stars are billions of light years away. You'll never reach them. No, not you. And as far as dreams are concerned, I once dreamed that zombies ate my brain. And if you want that to come true, you're not special. Or gifted and talented. You're insane. You're not that special. You're not that special. You're not that special. And if you think you are, well, you're not. Santa Claus keeps a list all year long of who's been naughty or nice. So when he brings you presents, that means you're special. Because you're nice, right? But I've seen really bad kids get presents, and even obnoxious teens. So if everyone give, gets presents anyway, I guess you know what that means. <laughs> You're not that special. You're not that special. You're not that special. And if you think you are, well, you're not. When I was a boy, my parents told me if I believed in myself, I could be anything I wanted to be. Well, they freaking lied! <laughs> I believe I could be a rock star, be adored by millions of screaming fans. But no, I'm stuck singing to a bunch of little kids about boo boo gaga fire. You wouldn't understand. <laughs> and you know what that means? Yeah. I'm not that special. He's not that special. I'm not that special. I'm just like you. We're not that special. And if we think we are, well, we're not. Oh, that well, good morning and welcome to Uptown Community Church. If you're visiting with us, I am so sorry you had to watch that video. But you know what? We got to wrap up our series and we have to go with a bang. And so, you know what? You'll go away from this morning service and you'll be humming that song. You're not that special. And uh, that's the message I really want to send home with you this morning. Now, uh, this morning we're going to wrap up our series by answering our final question. But before we do that, let's just recap what we talked about last week. So last week we asked this question about what happens to people who've never heard the gospel. Remember, this series came out of our World Religion series. And our World Religion series was a kind of a looking at different viewpoints of the world and asking ourselves, okay, how do we as Christ followers, how do we interact with uh, people who look at the world differently? Now, what's interesting is, is that when you have conversations with people in the world today, they think they're so clever in the sense of like, well, what about this? Well, what about that? And how about this thing or how about that thing? Now, the interesting thing is, is, is there have been uh, a lot of huge, uh, incredible thinkers within Christianity who have kind of answered these questions. And so this series about questioning God is all about saying, okay, so like, how do we assess this? How do we ask ourselves these questions? And so we ask ourselves the question, you know, what happens if a person has never heard the gospel? And I told you the answer kind of comes into two parts. First, the God will never send the innocent to hell. And second of all, there is no one innocent. And I talked about how there's this idea of special revelation and general revelation. And the Bible tells us quite clearly that 
through general revelation, God conveys who and what he is to uh, like the entire world. And this is not just to a certain type of people, but everybody in the world will have an encounter with God. And depending on who they are and where they are, God will speak to them in that language. We look at this passage of scripture from the book of Revelations where, like, I love how, again, when John's writing his apocalypse, the, what we call the book of Revelation, is that he sees at the very end of time, before the throne of God, everyone. Like, everyone. And again, it's, we have to kind of wrap our minds around that because what that tells me is that the Spirit of God has gone out through the world, throughout the globe, and has talked and reached out and, to, and has convicted, has, has spread who God is to a world around. So that's what we've looked at. But let's kind of recap a little bit about the series as we wrap up this morning. We started off asking the series, and we asked this question, if we ask the wrong question, we will always get the wrong answer. So oftentimes we can question God, but as we talked about a couple weeks ago, Every question, there is an assumption. Every question is a longing of our hearts. And sometimes we're asking God the wrong question. I love how C.S. Lewis, Lewis says it in The Problem of Pain. He talks about this idea of people say, well, why me, God? Well, I love how C.S. Lewis turns that around and says, well, why not you? Well, why shouldn't things happen to you? What is it about being a Christ follower that we think that we are immune to the calamities that happens to everybody else? And I said that as well, too, but this is the phrase I've used a lot, is frustration is unspoken expectations. So sometimes when I talk to people who used to be Christians or don't go to church anymore or who has faith in their background in the rearview mirror, oftentimes the reason why they no longer go to church, one of the reasons why they no longer believe in God, is because there is some point in their life, a, a crossroads where they came to, where God did not act as they expected. We've talked about this before, right? Something happened in their lives where they needed God to intervene and God didn't. And so what happens then is either doubt or frustration creeps in. And we don't say it. Like when people say to me, well, I used to be a Christian. I'm, the first thing out of my mouth is like, oh, so why do you no longer believe? Or what is it that, that convinced you there was no longer a God? And what's interesting, it's never about, well, I, I thought about this deeply and philosophically. It usually comes a, a painful moment in their lives where God didn't act as they expected. And so frustration is unspoken expectations, and that's what happens when we come to asking questions of God. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm asking this question, but the reality is I'm not really asking this question. I'm actually kind of conveying something about me that's actually misaligned to who God is. And what's interesting is when you look at the Bible, in the Gospels, Jesus is asked 187 questions. What I find amazing about who Jesus is is that wherever he went, wherever he interacted with, people are always trying to ask him a question. Now, those questions will come from probably not a great uh, uh, motivation. People might be asking those questions because like, hey, you know, Jesus, if you think you're so smart. And again, the Bible even says this, that the Pharisees were trying to trip him up or they were trying to find ways to sh expose him for being a fraud. He answers about eight of them. I say about because depending on how you look at the answer, it could be, well, he didn't answer it at all. But of, of the 187 questions, Jesus only kind of gives eight. Now, of the eight that he does answer comes from individuals or comes from circumstances where people are actually sincere. But what's interesting as well is that Jesus asks 307 questions. 307 questions, right? It's funny. We've talked about this, but like I said this at the very beginning that a part of where I came at the series was is that in Jewish philosophy, in Jewish rabbinic teaching, in the whole discipleship model, the rabbis start off by asking questions. They don't ask the students, what do you know? Or recite back the Torah. Or tell me the Ten Commandments. That's a very Western way of looking at, 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 our, at our faith journey by saying, give me information about what you know so I can see what you lack. And that can be true. But in rabbinic teaching, they start with a question. And the reason they start with a question is because a question gets closer to the truth than the answer. If I asked you like a, a question and you gave me the answer, I still don't know what you believe. I just know that you've memorized an answer. How many of you have ever done an exam or done through a course and you just know nothing about this is a, I'm ever going to remember? I just need to remember it for the exam. I just need to give the answer to the teacher that they want and just get out of this course with hopefully a passing grade, if not better, and that's it. Well, oftentimes when we study the Bible in such a way that we just have preloaded answers, 
we actually really haven't owned it and we really haven't kind of um, allowed these answers, these questions kind of internalize us. So Jesus asks a lot of questions and he asks a lot of questions because he's trying to get to the motivation of people. And I would say to you that every question is a beginning of a journey or the avoiding of one. It's either progression versus regression. See, one of the things that's interesting to me about Christianity, uh, especially Western Christianity, is that we have become uh, a little reactionary. And by reactionary, I mean we are answering questions that really the gospel doesn't really talk about. So again, in the pandemic, in the lockdown, Christians were very, very quick to giving answers about certain things, but like the gospel really doesn't talk about this. Right? As far as what you think about vaccinations and all that stuff, like, again, we've talked about this at UCC. Whatever your opinion was, however you want to approach it, that's fine. But that's not the kingdom of heaven. And so the reason I love the idea of a question is because if you take a question seriously, then you are going to have to ask yourself, well, what do I actually believe? And the reason why this makes Christians nervous is perhaps we haven't really internalized what we actually believe. So yesterday at work, um, at my other job, um, uh, this person where I work kind of came up to me and she said, so what are you teaching on tomorrow? So that's funny because they kind of, sometimes people where I work now saddle up to me and go like, hey, so what are you preaching on tomorrow? Because they know I'm a pastor. And I told her. And I said, okay, let me give you a riddle about what I'm teaching on. She's like, okay, uh, this is good, because you know when you're working retail, you gotta keep your brain occupied, right? So here's a, here's a riddle for you. And I told her what I'm teaching on, and I gave her the riddle, and I told her, so here's the two parts, now what is the third part? I said, that's your job, and at the end of the day, you come back to me and you tell me your answer. She's like, okay. So at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, we're, we're cleaning up, I can't remember what I was doing, and she comes up and she's like, okay, I got the answer. I'm like, oh, I totally forgot that I even asked this to you. Okay, fair enough, what's your answer? And she kind of talked to me. I'm like, whoa, that's not even close to being right. But uh, let's, let's talk about why you're wrong now. Now, I didn't say that. I thought it. You know, th you should be happy. I think things, but I don't actually say them. I said, okay, that's cool. I, I, I kind of see where you went with that. And I told her where I arrived. She's like, oh, I never thought about that either. Okay. And so we had a little interesting conversation about that. But what's interesting is, again, if I said to you, what's the answer to this, this, this question, you can maybe get the answer right or not. But it's not really showing me which, if you actually understand the why or, or what, what's behind it. So the first week we, ans we answered this question, why do bad things happen to good people, right? Remember, uh, I picked on Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, the physicist who drives me crazy, because Neil deGrasse Tyson is a physicist, astrophysicist, and he knows tons about the universe. But what he doesn't know is philosophy. Right? What he doesn't understand is the basic tenets of Christianity. Because remember I showed you that video where Neil deGrasse Tyson says, well, if an all-loving all God loves humanity so much, well, explain a tsunami. Explain, you know, uh, uh, you know leukemia in children. Explain, you know, and again, he points to all these tragedies. And the unfortunate part, Christians are all like, well, that's a really good point. I never thought about that. It's like, no, no, actually, you're actually looking at the world in the wrong, in the wrong way. And so we talk about this idea of why do bad things happen to good people, right? And we talk about this idea of a theodicy. Remember I said to you, a theodicy is a form of philosophy that tries to make sense of suffering. And in, in many ways, the weakest aspect of Western Christianity is the addressing of suffering, right? A lot of Christianity in, for Western church is all about vic victory, right? You'll have victory or you'll, ha you'll overcome. But what we haven't really done a good job is, well, what if I struggle? What have I done all the things you've told me to do, and I'm still wrestling with it? I'm still trying to figure out how to kind of you know, navigate this. Well, what happens then? It's a good question, actually. And so a theodicy is a branch of philosophy dealing with the e issue of evil in light of the existence of God. If God is just and holy and good, then how do evil and uh, misery exist? Now, one thing I did say to you beforehand is that when a tragedy takes place, you cannot come alongside the person saying, well, how's your theodicy in this? Because you're going to need this right now, right? It's like um, if you go out in a boat and the boat starts to sink, it doesn't help you to know that life preservers exist. If you don't have one in the boat, it's not going to help you in that sinking. Well, that's what a theodicy is like as well, too. This is why we need to think about these things beforehand, because when tragedy happens, you need to have this in place. Because, again, in suffering, right, with the existence of evil, we have to ask the right questions. The question isn't, why did this happen? 
there's different questions we can ask. So remember we talked about this idea about the process of pain, right? So bad things, whatever that might be, and, and it could be a whole uh, you know, realm of what that might be. The first thing I always say to a person when someone says to me, well, what about tragedy? What about a tsunami? What about an earthquake? What about this devastation in this part of the world? Well, I say to these individuals who ask me this question, well, this makes sense. What do you mean it makes sense? This world that we live in is infected and affected by sin. So I'm not surprised when things don't go right because the world that we live in is not as God intended it. So the bad things, first of all, reminds us of sin, and I think that's important. And Neil deGrasse Tyson really needs to integrate that in his understanding because when he uses the phrase, all loving God, if God's all loving, then why do bad things happen? God's all-lovingness does not circumvent humanity's choice and choices in regards to the realm. Bad things presents us a choice. Remember looking at Viktor Frankl, right? In tragedy, we are always offered an opportunity to look at the situation in a different light. God uses bad things to refocus us. Oftentimes, when tragedies does happen, people will then ask themselves or reassess their reality. And just so you know, I think that's a good thing. Because, remember this phrase, control is an illusion. Control is an illusion. Health, finances, relationships, pick it. You think you know what's going to happen. You think you know the, the future holds. You do not. And so when tragedy takes place, we're always like, what? And what's interesting, and this is, this is very much a Western thing, because when I've gone to other parts of the world, not that they expect bad things, but when it comes, they're not, like, surprised. Like, yeah, of course. For us, it's like, wow. And especially as Christians. We're like, wow, I can't believe. It's like, no, no, this is, this is actually part of what God's plan is. And finally, bad things is a reminder of heaven. I think that's really important to remember, is that the current reality that we live in, the, the, the circumstances we find ourselves, this is not what God intended. You know, we talk about this, you know, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. I don't know, those two chapters, I don't know how long they last. But however long they last, for the briefest moment in history, things were as they should be. And that didn't last very long. Because in chapter 3, sin enters the world and everything, all our realities altered. Disease, pestilence, famine, violence towards one another. Uh, again, think of all the, th all the horrible things that happened. That's when it comes into the world. And so we don't go, whoa, I can't believe this happened. We kind of go, yeah. Sin has infected and affected every level of reality, and we are not surprised when we are dealing with the consequences of that. Remember we asked this question, do I have to go to church to be a Christian? Remember I answered it at the very beginning? No, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. But the question we do need to ask is, what type of Christian are you, though? Because right? this is after the pandemic, people are reassessing church. And again, I get it. Right? I get it. Sunday morning, this morning, you woke up and you looked out the window and you go, hmm, my comforter, my blanket's really, really heavy right now. And that looks kind of unpleasant to walk out in. Maybe, just maybe, the Lord wants me to stay in bed. And he just wants me to meditate and reflect upon his goodness and the provision of rain for the environment. Maybe that's what he wants me to do. And so that Sunday becomes another Sunday, then another Sunday, and so on and so forth and, and whatnot. So the question is, do I have to go to church to be a Christian? And I said to you, no. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. But the question you, knew to, you do need to ask yourself is, what kind of Christian are you? Because... That's the thing that nobody ever asks themselves. We say to ourselves, well, I'm a Christian, as, it's a, as if it's a label. It's not actually a label. It's a process. And that's why I said what the church is supposed to be. I said the church is meant to be a place for agitation, a safe place to process the discomfort of sanctification. See, whatever the church is, it was not meant to be entertainment. Like, you shouldn't come to church and feel totally comfortable with your faith. Because if that's the case you are not getting the agitation that's necessary for the process of discipleship. Because whatever Christianity is, the central theme for it was, take up your cross and follow me. Can you imagine how many splinters there were in early wood 
right? Like, I just, like, like that just makes my shoulder just like, like, I just want to, like, get, take tweezers and get all the splinters out, right? The cross is central to whatever Christianity is. But it's an unpleasant, if not death thing, that is really the, the core of what Christianity is supposed to be. Church is meant to be a place of agitation. What I love, especially when we, when we look through the, uh, the series in, of, of Corinthians, is what we can often, often think is that, you know, I want to go to a church where, you know, meets my needs. Well, you know, you, you have to be fed and these for sure. But the other question is, is, well, what is, what's your part in this? So church going has become so passive where we don't expect anything of anyone. It's like, well, if that's the case then, then like, do I need to go to church? And again, if that's how you view church, well, I would say to you that maybe you don't need to go to church because really... You're already dead spiritually, so, you know, uh, just, just stay at home then. I know, it's terrible to say. But church is meant to be, an a, a, be a place of agitation. One of the things I loved about my small group this past year is we would have the most interesting conversation. And what I would learn as a pastor is that when people were talking about how either whether it was a pastor of scripture and or an aspect of God, I was like, oh, I never really actually thought about faith that way. I learn, and I'm growing in my faith as well too. Why? I'm being agitated. And again, agitation, as my wife tells me, is not irritation, which I am very good at apparently, but it's about this idea of like movement, right? Movement is what is necessary to be a Christ follower. And so church isn't a place you go. It's a context for becoming. And again, if you're not becoming, then what are you actually doing, right? What are you actually doing? We look at the quote by Frederick Douglass. If there is no struggle and there is no progress. And again, I love that. And we wrapped up by looking at this idea about it from 2 Corinthians, right? Remember what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do, not real, do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? Pause. Remember, the book of Cor uh, Corinthians, 1st and 2nd, is Paul is trying to talk to the church in Corinth, and he's trying to help them understand that being a Christ follower isn't just a statement that you make about yourself, but it's this whole progression from leaving your paganism to what it means to be a Christ-centered individual. And remember, Corinth was the first century Vegas, right? So this is why Paul in the book of Corinthians says, hey, when you guys have communion, try not to get drunk and have sex with each other. What kind of church is that? Well, I think it'd be one of the fastest growing ones in America, really. But what kind of church is that? Well, it's a church that forgets that when you become a Christ follower, you're being transformed into something that you were not beforehand. So the reason why Paul says the, uses this phrase as a test, and again, you, you guys should know this, that whenever you have a second or a third letter to a particular church, they still haven't figured it out, right? That they haven't figured it out. So the fact that Paul has to say this in 2 Corinthians, like, okay, just remember the first letter, uh, you know, maybe you should read that again, but here's another letter because you're still not getting it right. On the other side, he says this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What I love about this passage of scripture, and this is kind of the quintessential Holy Spirit transformation verse, is that what Paul sees here is that the Spirit of God is meant to be active within you. And the Spirit of God doesn't come alongside and say, hey, you're special. Hey, you're perfect the way you are. Don't change. Right? Remember, transformation happens outside our comfort zones. The more comfortable you are, the less opportunity you are going to have towards transformation. And again, unfortunately, Western churches have tried to... Uh, have tried to kind of create the gospel in, in a way that's palatable for culture. But in doing so, we have kind of curbed the edges of faith, and they do exist, but they're there for intentional reasons. And so Paul is trying to say, you know what? If you are not being transformed, if you are not moving, and remember I asked you on that Sunday, look back to your faith a year ago. Over the last year, can you honestly say that there is something that perhaps you have learned, or you have grown in, you're struggling with, you're wrestling with. And please remember, struggle is part of transformation. Right? Struggle is part of transformation. So it's not that you overcome, but even recognizing a piece of your life is, in, is misaligned with the gospel is part of the transformation. Because most people are walking around just like, yeah, you know what, it's all good, I'm fine. 
So those are the kind of questions we've been asking. This morning, we're going to wrap up by asking the question I get the most. And before I get to that, let's talk about self-deception, because why not? Um, there's a great article I came across. is why do we do deceive ourselves? Now, by the way, there is so much information about this, so y you're welcome that I'm not going to drown you about this. But what's interesting about self-deception is, is self-deception is so insidious, because how do you know you're lying to yourself? Do you ever ask yourself that question? How do you know if you're lying to yourself? What metric do you use to say to yourself, well, you know what? I'm actually deceiving myself. So as you guys know, I was diagnosed with diabetes a, couple, uh, a while ago now. Oh, my goodness. And it's interesting is because I can lie to myself and by saying something like, you know what? I'm doing okay. I'm eating as I'm supposed to. I'm exercising. Um, Donna's making sure that I'm not cheating too much. right? I can, I, I'm doing okay. But you know what? There's a test that I get to do every morning to actually see if I'm actually doing as good as I think I am. And that's where I, I, I prick my finger, and I take a little blood sample, and I pop it in, and, I, and, my, and my little reader tells me what my blood sugar actually is at. Now, why I like that is there's something external to me that actually says to me, this is actually how I'm doing. So if I'm doing well, my blood sugars are where they're supposed to be. And it's not because of how I feel about myself, because gosh darn it, I'm a swell guy, and I think I'm doing great doesn't matter if I just had a black forest cake to myself the night before. I'm doing okay. I need something external to myself to let me know whether I'm actually lying to myself. And so for my diabetes, there's a way to do that. And if I didn't do that, I just walk around going, you know, I'm fine. I don't need this. And right, as I lose sensation in my feet and go blind, right? So that, you know, there, is, there is some kind of negative outcomes to that. So here's what, uh, this is what... Uh, I don't know if this person's real name, but that's a kind of a cool name, Low Sticks. I don't know if that's his name or her name or their name. I don't know, but it's a great article. This is what he says. We all lie to ourselves. Whether we're convincing ourselves that something is or isn't true, self-deception is a common psychological tactic. So common, in fact, that people can be unaware they're even doing it. Pause. Ask yourself, have you ever lied to yourself about something or someone? So this can happen very much in relationships. If you have been uh, uh, dating somebody for a while, perhaps you have this mentality that, you know what, they can change. Don't you love that? They can change. Um, again, I had this great conversation with this person about uh, their relationship. They've been in a relationship with this person for three years. And uh, they kind of came up to me and asked, started asking me some questions. I'm like, oh, okay, let's do an assessment. Let's talk about your relationship. Right? Tell me about your partner, uh, who they were living with at the time as well. Tell me about your partner. You've been living with them for three years. Tell me about the relationship. And so they're talk, talking about it, and they're talking about it in such a way as if they're like, it, that it's all normal. But my, like, my jaw's like, what? You, like, what? Right? So afterwards, and I, I have a pretty good poker face, so I didn't, my horror didn't seep out too, e too much. And so they told me a little bit. I'm like, oh, okay. So let me ask you something. Do you think that as, um, as an individual, you should be treated in such a manner? And I gave up some examples they said to me. Oh, no, actually probably not. And, and, do you th and so we kind of unpacked that. But what was interesting about, about the whole conversation was is they had deceived themselves to that this relationship was completely healthy. That this, what the way they were being treated and, and how things were happening in the relationship. And again, I, I don't know the other individuals. So I have to take their word for it. But because the person who was telling me this, uh, I'm, I'm kind of believing them. I'm like, well, just so you know, this, it's not really that normal. Or perhaps this is not really the best way to be treated. And we kind of unpack that. But they deceived themselves. For three years, they've been living with this individual, thinking the relationship is great. But all the while, frustrated that, you know, that, what, uh, that the outcomes are what happened with they were. Self-deception was happening here at an at a, at extraordinary level. A recent study examining this, the role of self-deception and the strategies people use to deceive themselves suggests that the habit helps with motivation in challenging situations. Researchers observed participants reorganizing beliefs, seeking out solely supportive evidence while avoiding unsupportive evidence and rejecting facts by voicing doubts around credibility of a source. That should sound a little bit familiar, shouldn't it? We've been doing that as a society now for the last decade, it seems like, right? Since, I don't know, 2014. I don't know what happened around that day. But it seems as if our world is now, um, it, it, it has reorganized who they believe. So I was talking to a professor of political science and had a really interesting conversation with him. 
And I said to him, so what have you noticed? He was older. He was, uh, he, was, uh, he was no longer teaching, but he was still writing and all that. And I said, so what have you noticed in the political landscape? He kind of chuckled. He goes, it's, he goes, what I have noticed over the last, and he gave a certain period of time, he goes, he goes that nobody trusts anybody. I said, oh. I said, hasn't that always been the way? He's like, no. He says, at some point in time, people did trust experts. They did trust somebody saying to them, by the way, this, this thing is good for you. This thing is bad for you. But he goes, over the last decade, he goes, nobody trusts anybody and nobody knows who to believe. I said, well, why, why, why would that be the case? And he gave me some interesting, he gave me some interesting observations. Again, you're talking to a professor of political science. Of course, going to pick their brains, right? And I'm like, oh, okay. So he started talking about that. But what's interesting was is that one of the things he said is that like, truth has become this idea that it's now approachable by my own perspective. Right? So what he says down there, right? We, if someone says something I don't like, well, they don't, they're not on credibility. If someone says something I do like, oh, they know what they're talking about. Right? Again, it's this idea of confirmation bias. We only surround ourselves with people who say what we want to hear. He goes on to say this. Psychotherapist Terry Cole groups self-deception in with self-denial and self-delusion, right? The trifecta. It's deeper than just conscious effort to avoid uncomfortable information, but rather it's an unconscious psychological defense mechanism that protects against painful or intolerable feelings, right? So when we think about self-denial, self-delusion, or self-deception, we are trying to protect ourselves from some kind of truth about ourselves or about somebody else. Fair enough. Our minds long to have a coherent narrative about ourselves. Our experiences and the world is drawn to explanations that make sense to us, maintaining a sense of coherence. Cognitive and emotional dissonance are often difficult to hold. Self-deception allows us to hold on to this sense of coherence, even though it means we leave out some parts of the truth of who we are and live under some form of illusion. Now, where the heck am I going with all this? So we uh, start off with the video, which is kind of comical. And the video says, you're not that special. Now, I hope that's not a, a shocker to any one of you. But what I love about that video is that it seems kind of the opposite of what we're being told right now. Right? It's your world. You're living it. It's your truth. Live your truth. What I love about that idea of, and I had this conversation with somebody. I keep saying I have conversations with people. But you know I'm a high extrovert, so talking to people, I love that, right? And I, someone said that to me. They said, hey, I just want to live my truth. I said, hey, let me ask you a question. Okay. Jeffrey Dahmer. Do you know who that is? They're like, yeah. Do you think he was living his truth? What do you mean? Well, the guy liked to eat people. Yeah. But that was his truth, right? Yeah. Should he have been living that? And you know what? You can tell if there was smoke that could come out of the person's ear. I like because like I just had brought it to the point of way. So when we say people live your truth, what we are assuming is that truth coincides with mine. Right? When people say diversity and all that kind of stuff, what we're really saying is, do you agree with what I agree? Right? So diversity is not about you know allowing other people to have different opinions. That's not diversity. Diversity is when the entire everything agrees with what I believe. And if you don't believe what I believe, well, you're just crazy then. And I get to discount what you are and who you are. So what's interesting about this is that we have this idea we are special, that we are unique. And again, please understand, of course you are. But you can't use that as a permission to live a lie about who you are. The question we're going to ask this morning and hopefully answer is, can I be good without God? Can I be good without God? It's a question that comes up a lot. Because when people say to me, when people find out that I'm a pastor, the first thing that comes out of their mouth, well, I'm a good person. I, I wasn't going to say otherwise. But it's like a defense mechanism. Right? It's like, oh, I'm a good person. But lately, I've been kind of pushing into that a little bit. So I actually <laughs> I had a conversation. I don't know. Should we like make this kind of like a tic-tac-toe game? With this lady who, again, used to go to church. And I said to her, okay, so, so you don't go to church anymore. No, I, you know, I, just, I just don't like that religious stuffiness and all that. I'm like, hey, I, I get that part. And I said, so, like, so what is it that you try to, how do you live out today? She goes, well, I try to be a good person. So then I said, so what does that mean? 
of looked at me like, what do you mean? What does that actually mean? What does it mean to be a good person? And then she gave me the next line, which you're going to look at. Well, I'm nice. Oh, okay. And then I asked, what does that mean? Well, you know, I, like I say hi to people. That's very Canadian, of course. I, I'm, I'm going to take that. Yeah, nice. That's a good, that's a good thing. But I kind of pushed a little bit, and I could tell that she was a little bit confused. Because when you say to someone, I'm a good person, or I'm a nice person, well, usually the conversation ends. But because I'm annoying, I, I, that's not good enough. So the question I asked, and then so I started asking other people and in both my kind of realms of influence right now, I was like, hey, what, what does it mean to be a good person? I started asking this question. I've been doing this now for about three, four weeks because, you know, I knew where I was going with the series. What does it mean to be a good person? What was fascinating to me is two things came up, right? Every person had a different understanding of what it means to be a good person. Okay. But two ideas kept coming up. I haven't killed anyone, and I'm a nice person. These lines kept coming back up. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So if I said to you, like, are we, are we good people? Are, is a society, is we, are we good? And for most people, they kind of say, well, you know, there are things we need to fix. Now, depending on your, on your framework, oh, no, the world's terrible, and we're, you know, it's all, we're going to hell in the handbasket. I never understood how a handbasket could hold hell, but, you know, whatever, that's a really good handbasket. But people go, well, no, it's negative. So because I'm more data-driven than most people, I'm kind of trying to look into it going, are we actually a good, good culture? Are we actually doing well? So what I found was kind of interesting. So one of the ways I would say that you could see whether a person's a good person or not is, hey, like, how do you volunteer? Do you volunteer? Now, please understand something. That's not the only metric, but I think that's an interesting one. Because volunteering is, 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 well, it's voluntary. Right? No one's making you do it. You get to choose whether you want to or not. And according to all available data, we as a society, we don't do this very much anymore. And it's declining. It has been declining for a long, long time. To the point now where almost every charitable organization is desperate for volunteers. We go, okay, so community groups in Toronto, it's nice to have some Canadian content, right? Have seen a, de a decline in the number of volunteers over the past year, and experts say pandemic fatigue, fear of getting infected with COVID-19, and financial barriers are all contributing to the drop. And I think that's absolutely true, apart from the fact that pre-COVID, we're still declining as well too. According to the analysis of U.S. Census Bureau data by AmeriCorps, 30.3% of people nationally were involved in formal volunteering for any organization in 2017. But that rate had dropped by 23.2% by 2021, the last year of the reporting data. And again, the percentage of respondents who reported volunteering time, however, fell to 56% in 2021, continuing the downward trend from 65% in 2013, and so on and so forth, and lots more numbers. But you get the idea, right? We are no longer volunteering or volunteerism is seen as something that's 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 arbitrary not really important now i chose this as a metric because why i think this one's kind of important is because what a volunteering does is that you say i'm going to take what limited time i have and please understand when you tell me you're busy i believe you when you tell me you're feeling financial crunch i believe that as well too so to volunteer you have to carve out time in your busy schedule to do something for someone else. And there's not going to be much return in regards to a benefit. There might be like this kind of like, a, you know, the uh, cathartic, oh, I've helped somebody type of thing. But there's really not a lot more than that. What's interesting is, and again, I, I like how Simon Blackbird says it, we can check on what people say by seeing what they do. So when someone says to me, I'm a good person, the question I want to ask is, well, how do you define that? And again, if the metric of being a good person is, oh, I haven't killed anyone, I would say to you that that's, that's a gross uh, narrative in regards to how we try to even think about what it means to be a good person. So remember, the question is, can I be good without God? So I started asking myself, is there a difference between religious people and secular people? Now, remember, you guys know who I am. I won't cheat. If there is no difference, I want to know that. Right? If there is a difference, I want to know that as well, too. And I want third-party sources to actually analyze that. So I started looking at some research going, okay, is there actually a difference? Well, fun fact, there is. And I found a, a lot of actually literature on this. 
When researchers document how people spend their hours and their money, religious Americans look very different from others. Pew Research Center investigators examined the behavior of a large sample of the public across a typical seven-day period. They found that among Americans who attend services weekly and pray daily, 45% had done volunteer work that previous week. Among all other Americans, only 27% had volunteered somewhere. So what they're saying here, again, what Pew Research has discovered, is that people who attend church regularly, now this is important, okay, because this is going to come up again. There is a idea out there that if I call myself a Christian but never attend church, don't believe my beliefs, don't actually read the Bible, don't pray every day, well, the question we need to ask ourselves are, are you actually a Christian? That's a different conversation. But I've always said that we need to look at behaviors to see if they're align aligned with the actual statement. So if I say, if you say to me, you're a Christian, then I may start kind of probing to see if that's actually true. Remember, I've said to you that whenever we do a census now, you know, the boxes, and most people go, well, I'm not this religion, I'm not that ethnicity, you go, okay. But with the Christian one, it has to be a drop-down box. And the drop-down box is, when's the last time you went to church? Do you actually uh, volunteer anywhere? Are you giving a portion of your, your finances to somewhere? Like, and then, and if, if you don't answer a certain amount of them correctly, then you're not allowed to uh, put that, and we're going to move you over to either atheist or you know, uh, agnostic or whatever. But we're not, you don't get to check that box off. I know, it's not going to happen, but wouldn't that be fun right, in my twisted world? But the idea simply is, is that what we're seeing here where from just empirical data is that if you are an, a, a regular attender of church service or actually active in your faith, that you have a, uh, a, a disproportionately higher rate of volunteerism. Of all associational activity that takes place in the U.S., almost half of it is church-related, according to Harvard sociologist Robert Putnam. As a whole, notes Tim Keller, secularism is not good for society. Secularism makes people very fragmented. They may talk about community, but they aren't sacrificing their own personal goals for community as religion requires you to do. There's more. Philanthropic studies show that people with a religious affiliation give away several times as much every year as other Americans. Research by the Lilly School at Indiana University found Americans with any religious affiliation made average annual charitable donations of $1,590 versus $695 for those with no religious affiliation. Another report using data from the panel study for income dynamics juxtaposed Americans who do not attend religious services with those who attend worship at least twice a month and made fine tunings. Now, Fine tunings, whenever I see that, it sets alarm bells. Again, I don't want to cheat. So what was a fine tuning? The fine tuning is exactly what I said to you. Do they actually attend church on a regular basis? Do they have behaviors that actually align with their, their statement of being a Christian? To compare demographic apples to apples, the result, $2,935 of annual charitable giving for the church attenders versus 704 for the non-attenders. Okay? Uh, one more. In study after study, religious practices practice as a behavioral variable with the strongest and most consistent association with generous giving. And people with religious motivations don't just give, uh, don't give just to faith-based uh, causes. They also much likelier to give to a secular cause than a non-religious. Two-thirds of people who worship at least twice a month give to secular causes compared to less than half of non-attenders. The average secular gift by a church attender is 20% bigger. So by all available data, whatever we think of with good, seems that faith plays a role in it. Again, not surprised here, but I'm kind of delighted that I, at least the data to kind of um, confirm what I actually was hoping to be true. Because when I ask people, are you a good person? The secondary question I ask is, what behaviors do you have to validate that statement? And again, killing somebody and just saying hello? It's not really good behavior, I would say. So give me more than that. And what I found was, there's not much more than that, which I found kind of interesting. So as an anecdotal piece of information, um, as many of you may know, or some of you don't know or don't care, but last year, I went to my 30th high school reunion, 30 years since I've seen my high school friends. And yes, we all got fat and, that's, and, and lost our hair and, and whatnot. Some people were exactly frozen in time, but that's a whole different conversation. So I'm part of this um, chat group. There's about 60 of us from our class. I think our entire graduating class was like 100 people, right? Uh, and so there's 60 of us in this class. And so back at Wabo, we, we did the coldest night of the year walk for Rave Hope. 
And I posted the link, and I talked a little bit about the Ray Pope, and I said, hey, if anyone wants to sponsor, this is, this is the link you can do so if you're, if you're able to, no big deal. And I was just saying, hey, you could just do 10 bucks, right? What was interesting to me, and this is just anecdotal, of the 60 people, now remember, in this group, people were talking about their vacations and, and their houses and all that kind of stuff, and that's what, you know, 50-plus-year people do, I guess, when they're trying to prove themselves to their classmates. Nobody except for one person sponsored me. Do you know who the person who sponsored me was? The other Christ follower in the group. Well, that was kind of, kind, of, kind of interesting. The 59 people who were part of that group decided, you know what, I don't want to help the homeless. I don't want to help uh, community center. And again, rave hope, whatever you think about them, they do great work. And again, homelessness and, uh, and addiction, all this, these are front and center in the headlines. I thought this was kind of low-hanging fruit. But what was interesting to me, when it actually came down to it, only one person in the group sponsored me, and that was a person who was a Christ follower in my high school. I thought, huh, isn't that kind of interesting, right? So the, the answer really is, yes, you can be good without God, but how good are you really? And that's kind of interesting if you ask me, right? So this is the question. Remember that girl who came to me yesterday and asked me what I'm teaching on? I asked this question. How do you know you're a good person? She goes, oh, okay. And then I said, and then I want you to ask yourself, are there three layers of good or three ways of thinking about good? And I kind of gave her the first two. I said, you know, there's good, there's nice, but do you think there might be a third layer of good? She's like, oh, okay. And again, that was, the, that was a riddle I gave to her, and that's what she thought of for the day. So when we talked about this, I said to you that the first layer of good is just good, the second layer of good, is, I think, is nice. But I believe there's actually a third layer, which I think is a very unique layer, which only kind of seems to be inhabited by, again, according to available research, religious people. So the first good really is this idea of no external harm. So when I say to you that, are you a good person? Well, I haven't killed anybody. What you're really saying is, I have not harmed anyone. And to that I say, okay, good. And if I say to you, are you a nice person? The response is, well, yeah, I say hello to a stranger. I say, excuse me, pardon me. And again, that's very Canadian, and I'm like, okay, I'm good with that too. But really, those two forms of good, who cares? Do they really actually make a difference? So I began to think to myself, there's got to be a third layer, because again, if we think of it by progression, there has to be a third layer that they encompass. Now, what's interesting is Paul the Apostle has the exact same conversation. Bet you didn't know that. But you're wondering when I'm going to get scripture in this as well, too. Romans chapter 7, verse 14. Look what Paul says. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human a slave to sin. Now, again, I love what Paul's saying that. Because in my mind, whenever I read anything that Paul writes, he does not seem human. But when he says, I'm all too human, we go, okay. Verse 15, I don't really understand myself for what I want to do, what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Go, hmm, okay. So I want to be a good person, but really, am I a good person? I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyways. I have discovered this principle of life, that what, when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. So Paul is wrestling with this idea as well, too, right? So people say, I'm a good person. You're not special, and I think you might be deluding yourself because we don't want to have, a, we, we don't want to have this, this idea in our minds that we're actually not good people, right? We actually may not be a good person because my, our goodness doesn't extend past doing nothing, really. So maybe you're not a good person, but maybe you're not able to admit that because your idea of goodness is really, it doesn't ask you to do anything. If goodness as society defines it is simply doing no harm or saying hello to a stranger, does this in fact make you good? These examples and their subsets are not about doing good, but about minimal effort needed for self-deception. See, when people say, and you've been on social media, right? A tragedy takes place, sending my prayers to thinking about who cares right who cares your prayers and your, your 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 special thoughts how about doing something 
But if it's a tragedy, like Red Cross is fantastic. Or, or just doing something, right? But what we've done is we've defined good in a way, in a way that's more self-delusional than it is actually practical. And thank goodness that the world has Christians in it because if we weren't at least leading the charge in this, there'd be a lot of stuff that would be un left undone. But, you know, what's interesting. The Gospels talk about this a lot. And what's interesting about the Gospels is, as again, the Gospels are Jewish. And what's interesting about Jewish people is they don't really talk about thinking or feeling good. They don't really talk about thinking or feeling faith. They talk about faith and action. So what's interesting is whenever the Bible and whenever the Gospels talk about this idea of good, attached to it is some action. In other words, it's not enough for you to think that you're a good person. You, what you have to say to yourself is, am I acting in a way that is good? Because belief without behavior is self-delusion. See how I'm bringing this all around here? You're welcome. So when we think about this, Jesus seems to always attach action to the idea of good. Good isn't a self-declarative statement. Instead, it is an uncomfortable divine impulse that propels us to seek the active good of the other. See, as a Christ follower, I'm commanded, whether I like it or not, first of all, not just to think of myself in a good way, because the reality is I'm not a good person, but to act and behave in such a way that I see another person and see the inherent love, the image of God in them, and so to behave and act in such a way that I am trying to seek their betterment. And that can happen in a variety of ways. See, if I think to myself, I'm a good person, then I've just told myself that I don't have to do anything because I'm already good. Now, this isn't the idea of like, oh, I have to hate myself so I can do good for people, or I need to good, do good to people because that, that makes me good. No, no, no. As a Christ follower, I act in the such a way for the other because God sees them as good. God, uh, the image of God is, is in them. And sometimes that image can be really hard to see because they're really annoying. Right? Sometimes that image of God is really hard to see because they say things or do things or behave in such a way that just pushes every button you got. But again, that's not left to us to be able to understand that. So let's go back to this. And I said to this girl yesterday, that the third good that I think that Christ followers do better than anybody else, and again, it's not just me who thinks this, it's also based upon empirical data, that the, the question mark isn't the third good, but the question mark really is sacrificial. See, what I find interesting about being good or doing good and whatever the good, all this good stuff is, is that this goodness doesn't require anything of us or do anything for anyone else. This is what is so self-delusional, self-destructive, or self-denial about this idea is it doesn't really actually change the trajectory of somebody else's life. And sacrificial is really, at the core, I think, a divine good. Let me close with one last scripture. John chapter uh, 10, verses 11. Jesus sums it up and puts these both together perfectly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd, what? Sacrifices his life for the sheep. See, the ultimate good, if you want to think about it, if you want to ask yourself, am I a good person? The question you need to ask yourself is, what am I sacrificing for the betterment of someone else? And if the answer is nothing, then perhaps the statement of I'm a good person might be a little bit more delusional than actual factual. Do you have this gets uncomfortable really fast? And in the conversations I've been having, these conversations have gotten a bit uncomfortable because I have been pushing back on the good statement. I'm a good person. Well, what does that mean? What do you do for other people? How do you sacrifice anything of your life so that other, somebody else may have a better way? And again, this is really up to you to kind of wrestle with this. It's not me to say, tell you, say to you, this is what you should do. But it's me saying to you that can you be good without God? In the most bland vanilla way. And everyone knows that vanilla is the worst flavor out there because it's the absence of other flavors. 
What you really want is chocolate, people. Come on, right? Salt is not a spice. What you want is some cayenne pepper. You want something a bit more, right? Let's, just not, let's not be bland about our goodness. Let's be spicy or, or, or sweet, savory. I don't know, whatever flavor, whatever floats your boat that way. But something that's not bland. Do you know, I think that the... I think that's so interesting to me about Christianity when I talk to people about Christians is I think the thing that repulses people from Christianity, I think it's the blandness that they're presented by people they know who are Christians. Remember we talked about last week? That you have to, if your life can make sense without God, are you really a Christian? Because there are going to be parts of our lives, things that we believe, things that we do, things that we say, things that we behave, that the only reason we can do that is because God because we believe God exists, that he is real, and that what he has called us to is more than anything else. But if Christianity is this bland, vanilla, kind of like I'm a good person type of thing, how convincing is that? And I'll say to you, it's not very convincing because what does it require of you? I think the goodness that Jesus portrays, the goodness that the Jewish thinking has, is there is a sacrificial piece to it. So when someone says, I'm a good person, I would say to you, Prove it. Prove it. Like, like, again, you can be a good person, but like, are you really a good person? Or are you just self-delusional? Please don't call yourself delusional. And please don't say your pastor told me to call yourself delusional. But just understand in your mind that I think the society, I think this world has deluded itself. And I think this is where we as Christ followers can really lead the charge because we know what true goodness is it's sacrificial. It's giving up of something for someone else. And in so doing, I think that we get to portray a goodness that the world could never understand. Let's pray. So let's take this moment to reflect. I do this every Sunday just so that you have an opportunity I know that I'm giving you lots of information, lots of content, and I want you to take a moment at the end of the service to reflect. Are you a good person? Not good as society says, but Jesus good. Because Jesus good is very different than society's good. Society's good is inert, it's lethargic, it's apathetic. Jesus' good is active, it's sacrificial. I implore you, I beg of you, examine your life. Is the cross the center of it? And in that center, are you looking, seeking the betterment of others? Are you looking to see the image of God in others and, and living in such a way that you are trying to contribute towards that? And that is absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, a sacrificial piece. And spoiler alert, take up your cross daily. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are good, but your goodness wasn't far off in the distance. It wasn't separated from humanity. But instead, your goodness was active. It was intervening. It was sacrificial in every way possible so that humanity might experience the kingdom of heaven. But then you placed upon our shoulders the mandate of the kingdom. And the mandate of the kingdom is, is to do the good that the kingdom is in such a way that is, it's, that is going to just show people the truth of the gospel. Lord, I think the world needs to see a better way. And I think that we as Christ followers have a better way. But sometimes we don't, we don't portray it, live it out in such a way that I think is different than anybody else who doesn't even have faith. And I pray, God, that you by your Holy Spirit would encourage us, strengthen us, and move us into more active living out of our faith. Jesus, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for your spirit. And I pray, God, that the, both those ideas would spur us on this week to seeking the active good of others. In Jesus' name.